Good morning, faith family. I am excited to be able to lead us in our study of God's word this morning. If you're a guest here with us today, first of all, welcome. We are so glad that you've decided to worship with us this morning. I want you to know that we are currently, that today is the fifth Sunday in a six-week series where we are studying together the biblical book of 1 Peter. If you've been with us for a little bit, then you know this is the fifth Sunday, and that means we're supposed to wrap things up next week, but so far we've only managed to cover up through about half of chapter two. So if we're going to wrap this series up next Sunday, then we've got a whole lot of ground to cover. And if you've looked in your worship guide at the passage we're studying today, then you've also realized we're about to try to cover a chunk of that ground right now. So if you will, open up your Bible or open up your Bible app on your phone or device and navigate over to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. And once you find it, I want to ask you to keep it open there, to keep it handy. Because our passage is so long, we're not going to take one opportunity to read the entire block of it at one time. Instead, we're going to be referring to it over and over again throughout our time together. So you'll want to make sure that you have it there to be able to refer to. Now, this is Memorial Day weekend, and that means a couple of things for people. As John just reminded us, first and foremost, this is a day in which we remember And we honor the ultimate sacrifice that has been paid by men and women of our armed forces for our country and for our freedom. But also along with that is many people consider this weekend to be the official beginning of summer. And summer means lots of different things to lots of different people. Summer camps, cookouts, rock the block, lounging by the pool, going to the beach and I personally like all of those things too, but when it comes to summer, what it means to me more than anything else is Hollywood blockbuster movie season. Now, you know what blockbusters are. They're the big movies that come out every summer from the big studios, and they've got the big budgets and the big name stars, and they're expected to make big money when they open. In a word, they're really, really big. And we've seen some huge movies already come out during this season, namely Avengers Endgame. But as we look over the course of the rest of the summer, there's lots of other big movies to be expected. One is the live-action version of Aladdin that opened just this weekend. Then we have X-Men Dark Phoenix that's coming out, Toy Story 4, uh, Spider-Man Far From Home, and then another live-action version of a cartoon, The Lion King. Incidentally, all of those movies that I just mentioned are owned by Disney, which makes them the biggest of the big boys in Hollywood. They're so big, in fact, that they're basically seen as unbeatable. So much so that smaller movie studios with smaller movies will often change the weekend that they're going to release their film so that it doesn't have to compete with one of these blockbusters because they're seen as unstoppable. Now, I mention that because we've actually entitled this sermon series, Unstoppable. But when Peter's initial audience received this letter from him, most likely they were feeling anything but that. They lived in a region called Asia Minor, which is now part of modern-day Turkey. And it, of course, was part of the Roman Empire, which was essentially the Disney of its day, the biggest of the big boys. And the blockbusters that Rome would have been promoting was the polytheistic pantheon of gods that the Romans had inherited from the Greeks. Jesus and his church of Christians were basically like a small art house film from some nowhere backwoods place that might make a small splash when it was initially released, but then inevitably would be drowned out by everything else around it. But Peter knew that would not be the case. He knew as much as anyone that that would not be the case because he had seen firsthand just how unstoppable Christ was. He had stood in the empty tomb. He had walked with the risen Lord. Death, the supposed finality of life, couldn't stop Jesus. 
And Peter witnessed that firsthand. He knew since Jesus was unstoppable that his gospel, his good news was unstoppable. And his church as gospel ambassadors would also be unstoppable. But it was easy for Peter's audience to forget that. When they were summarily ignored or worse, they were ridiculed and oppressed because of their faith. So that's why Peter wrote them this letter to encourage them by reminding them of the outcome that God had promised and to show them just how they could be unstoppable. And I want us to see how that can be true and how that can be true for us today as well. So let's start by reading just two verses. We're going to begin by reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Now if you were to sum up the first part of Peter's plan for how to be unstoppable, you could sum it up this way. Do good. Do good. In fact, this admonition Peter gave his readers to do good, it's central to his overall message throughout this section of his letter. He emphasized it over and over and over. He begins by stating it two different ways here in verse 12. He says, number one, conduct yourselves honorably, in other words, do good, among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works, the good things you do. Then in verse 15 of chapter 2, for it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Verse 20, but when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. In chapter 3, verse 6, you have become her children when you do what is good. Verse 11 of chapter 3, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good. And then he wraps up this section, chapter 4, verse 19. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Peter urged, he charged his readers to do good. And that good stood in stark contrast to their other option. In fact, if you sum up both of these verses, you could say it this way. Number one, don't sin. Instead, do good. But don't get a picture in your head of Peter standing there kind of wagging his finger at the church in Asia Minor saying, you better be good now because God is watching. Peter is not calling for them to do good or else they'd get in trouble. He's not telling them to do good so they could get closer to God. He's not even telling them to do good so that they could become more godly. No, Peter charged his readers to do good because that's who they were. That's who they had become. That's who God had made them. We can't read these two verses and all the ones that will follow without keeping in mind everything else that Peter has written previously in this letter. It can be summed up in this way with just the two verses that come before these. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter's readers had been lost in darkness, trapped in their sin. But God, God mercifully chose them and called them into his light, the light of his salvation by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, so that now they were his people, God's people, his holy people, his good people. They were to do good because God is good. And God had made them good. 
That's what it means to say that he justified them. He made them good. He gave them his righteousness, his goodness. That's why Peter urged them as strangers and exiles and charged them to conduct themselves honorably among the Gentiles. You see, most of them were Gentiles, meaning most of them weren't from a Jewish background. But because they had now put their faith in Christ, they were no longer defined by those ethnic definitions. They were now defined by who God had made them. That what was true for the church in Philippi when Paul wrote to them in Philippians 3.20 was also true for these in Asia Minor. Their citizenship was now in heaven. That was why he urged them to abstain from sinful desires as exiles. They were now strangers in this very culture in which they had lived before because God had transformed them into his good and holy people and made them citizens with him in heaven. And then the reason the Gentiles around them now slandered them as evildoers, even though they were abstaining from sin, was because the Gentiles didn't see what they had been doing as sin. Look at how Peter wrote about it a little later. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. The people Peter's readers lived among, they carried on an unrestrained behavior. They engaged in wild living. Their mantra was basically, if it feels good, it is good. But Peter called his readers to a higher standard, not based on some culturally moral code, but based on God and his character and his word. God now defined the standard for them of what was good. So they were to abandon their former ways of sinful living and to devote themselves to doing the good God called them to. But they no longer had to try to do that according to their own strength. As God's people, they could rely on his strength and his power both to avoid sin, sin and to then do good. Okay, so what then exactly were Peter's readers to do in order to ensure that they were doing good? Well, throughout this section of his letter, Peter gives a number of different examples of what this could look like. In 1 Peter 3, 8, and 9, he says, Finally, all of you, be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble, not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but, on the contrary, giving a blessing, since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. Or 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received the gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. However, all these things that Peter lists in these two verses and elsewhere, they weren't meant to be exhaustive. They're just some examples of what it meant to do good. But there's one place where I think Peter summed up what he had in mind, and it's just before in 1 Peter 2, in verse 17. Verse 17 of 1 Peter 2. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Here Peter gave four commands that I think contain kind of a hierarchical view of what it means to do good. On one level was honor that's shown to everyone. On another level is love that's reserved for the fellow members of the peoples of God. And then on the highest level is fear of God. Then Peter mentions the emperor, but he kind of bumps him back down to the same level as everyone else. Just honor the emperor. So honor everyone. Do good by honoring everyone. Treat them well. Show them respect. Be kind and helpful and courteous. Do good to them and for them. If for no other reason than that they too, like you, are created in the very image of God. 
then do good to your brothers and sisters. Do good to the other holy people of God. Love them. This doesn't mean we don't love others, of course. Obviously, we know that Jesus has called us to love everyone, even our enemies. But this love here for brothers and sisters in the family of God, it's a special level of intimate care and concern and responsibility that we have for one another. And then, of course, we are also called to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're also to honor him. But here, Peter wrote that doing good to God is to fear him. Fear God. This is a level of referential love and honor that is reserved for God alone simply because of who God is. Before we put our faith in Christ, we needed to fear God because of his wrath toward our sin. But as followers of Jesus... The fear we possess now is from a desire to never displease him and to show him the love and honor that he alone deserves. So that was Peter's idea of doing good. Honor everyone, love their brothers and sisters, fear God. And that then brings us to the second part of his plan for his readers to be unstoppable, which also happens to be the ultimate reason to do good. And that is to glorify God. Glorify God. Remember, Peter's audience most likely didn't feel very unstoppable. Many of them were experiencing very real suffering on a daily basis simply because they had faith in Christ. But even so, the response that Peter called them to have was to do good. And this was a very particular reason that he articulated earlier in the first chapter of 1 Peter in verses 6 and 7. He wrote, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Doing good in the midst of their suffering would prove their faith, which would then bring glory to God. Peter echoed this same sentiment a little bit later in verse 11 of chapter 4 where he said, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Doing good glorifies God. And it glorifies him for any number of reasons. It proves our faith. It shows our dependence upon him since we are powerless to do good on our own. And it also demonstrates our obedience to him. However, Peter wasn't solely concerned with the ways his readers would glorify God in their own good works. He wanted them to do good so that others might also glorify God. That's why he ends verse 12 as he does. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. Now remember, Peter was one of Jesus' earliest disciples. He had been present for nearly all of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so when Peter wrote these words, I can't help but think that he has the Sermon on the Mount on his mind. Remember what Jesus said in those passages in Matthew 5, verses 14 and 16. He said, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lamp stand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light Shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Peter had already reminded his readers that God had called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. And it was now their responsibility, their opportunity to let their light shine by doing good so that others could see those good works and glorify God in heaven, just as Jesus himself had called them to do. 
And Peter had something very specific in mind in regards to how they were going to do, do just that, how they were going to do good in this way in which people could notice it and result in glorifying God. And that brings us to the third part of Peter's plan to be unstoppable. He wrote to them to submit yourselves. Submit yourselves. Now, submission is not necessarily a popular idea in our culture, but for Peter, it was crucial. Remember that his readers, the people living in the culture of Asia Minor that surrounded them, they would slander these Christians there simply because they refused to live in this unrestrained behavior that the culture treasured so much. But the church's good works, they were meant to counteract and to silence that slander so that others might have the chance to glorify God so that their negative words toward the church could be replaced by words of praise and glory to God the Father. But they wouldn't give the church there a second chance if the church was seen as isolationist, as if they would just withdraw and just be by themselves. They wouldn't give the church a chance if the church was seen as a bunch of troublemakers. No, as ambassadors of Christ, the church was entrusted with maintaining a good respect, a good reputation for Christ. And that meant that they had to engage the culture around them. They needed to be with people. And they needed to be with them in a way that helped to create and to maintain harmony among the church and the others around them. And for that to be the case, submission was absolutely necessary. Let's look exactly at what Peter wrote. First, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 20. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submit as free people, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if because of a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Then 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. In the same way, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure, reverent lives. Don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart, the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, the holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with a weaker partner showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now, we love our freedom, don't we? After all, that's part of what makes Memorial Day so sacred to us, that the sacrifice that so many have made as part of our armed forces has meaning and value because it was for the sake of others. These brave men and women gave their lives so that you and I and countless others might be free. And that is most certainly deserving of honor and respect. Yet, for many Americans, we view our freedom as antithetical to submission. In fact, some might say that submission is not a very American idea. After all, as Americans... We tend to pride ourselves as individualists, free to think and act and speak however we see fit. Sure, we make certain concessions in order to live in a respectable society, but only the bare minimum. 
We don't want our freedoms infringed upon. However, for the Christian, American or not, it is true freedom that both enables and empowers our submission. Prior to God's salvation, we were slaves to sin. There was no freedom. However, through faith in Jesus, God frees us from that slavery to sin. That's what it means for, to say that he saves us. He rescues us from that slavery. However, the freedom that we now have in him is not a freedom to do whatever we want. Rather, it's a freedom to serve him however he wants. Peter made it clear that understanding of freedom is what was to drive the submission of his readers in both the state and the household. He began with the general call to submission that applied to everyone in the church. He wrote for them to submit to every human authority and to do it for the Lord and as God's slaves, as his servants. The purpose for submitting in this way was in order to silence their slander so that the authorities would not be able to see any wrongdoing within or trouble coming from the church. They would just see God's good people doing God's good. And prayerfully, the result of them seeing that would be that they too would join in with the church and glorifying God. But remember where this submission falls within the hierarchy of doing good. Honor everyone, love their brothers and sisters, Fear God. The emperor was the greatest of the state's authorities, but he was put on the same level as everyone else. Honor the emperor. Peter called the church to submit to the Roman emperor with honor. And that is most shocking when you realize that the emperor during the time in which Peter was most likely writing this letter was Nero who just a few years later was going to enact the greatest persecution that God's people have ever known. But Peter says, submit to them. The submission to the state, it wasn't meant to be wholesale. If some law or edict or command conflicted with doing good for God's people or doing good for God, then they were certainly free from obeying it. The greatest strategy that Peter gave the church for engaging and changing the culture around them wasn't to get politically involved. Now, not, that's not to say we shouldn't be politically involved. We should be, because we have a recourse to bring about change, and our faith should drive that. The people, the church in Asia Minor, they had no recourse for that. They had no way of, of obtaining that authority, of speaking any truth to that authority. No, the greatest strategy that Peter gave them to bring about change within the state was to do good so that the authorities might see it and then glorify God. And then if they were glorifying God, that's what would change the state. Peter then, in this passage, he turned his attention from submission within the state to submission within the household. And he directly addressed two different types of people in the household who would have had lowly positions, especially when compared with the head of household, slaves and wives. In Peter's day within the Roman Empire, the head of household decided everything else for those within the home. That included what interaction they could have with other people and what religious practices they could employ. What he decided for himself was decided for everyone. So a wife couldn't have any other friends that weren't her husband's friends. A slave probably couldn't have friends at all. And then both the slave and the wife were just expected to worship in whatever way the head of household, the master or the husband, decided was the right way to worship. However, here, Peter was writing to household slaves and wives who had put their faith in Christ and had been united together with God's people so that they had a new community of fellowship beyond just friendship. They had a new family, even though their master or their husband did not. So then what were they to do? Well, in a word, they were to submit. This wasn't different necessarily from the expectation that was already there for them. Slaves and wives were expected to submit within the household, but Peter changed the purpose behind it. They were submit, quote, with all reverence. 
echoing the honor that Peter called for them to have for everyone. They were already breaking social and cultural norms just by putting their faith in Christ and gathering together with other believers. But they needn't rock the boat too much. They could submit just as well, if not better, than they could have before because now they were free to submit for the Lord and as his servants, regardless of how they might be treated in the household. And the goal, of course, again, was seeing the head of household transformed so that he, too, would be led to Christ through the witness of all the good works that they were doing in their submission. Now, we'll come back to what Peter said to household slaves and what that means for us just a bit later. But I first want to address some of these instructions that Peter had specifically for wives and husbands. First of all, it's worth noting that, in a sense, this is much more about evangelism training than it is teaching about marriage. We know from Ephesians 5 that within the Christian family, the Christian household, the husband is the head of the house as a picture of Christ being the head of the church. And the wife is called to submit to the husband as a picture of the church submitting to the headship of Christ. But that's not the case here. Peter called these Christian wives to submit to their husbands, even the ones who disobeyed the word, so that they might be won over by them. That meant that there would be times that they weren't treated exactly as they should be. After all, how could their husbands love them in the way he should, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, if they had never known Christ's love for themselves? But I want to be clear here because this text has been misused in some ways within the church in the past. There is absolutely nothing in this passage that would either sanction the abuse of wives or suggest that women should submit themselves to that kind of treatment from anyone, anywhere. Ladies, if you ever find yourselves the victim of abuse or mistreatment, whether from someone claiming to be a Christian or not, that is not something that you were called to endure, and we are here to help. We want to help ensure that you are safe. So please let a pastor or a staff member know. Let a small group leader so they can tell us, and we will help you. What Peter did instruct wives to do was to focus their attention on their inward character rather than their outward appearance. It was the manner in which they lived doing good, not what they looked like while living, that would demonstrate the gospel to their unbelieving husband and families. Peter focused this instruction on wives to adhere to because like today, the women in Rome were called to adhere to a certain sort of cultural beauty standard. But Peter rightly wanted them to instead concern themselves with inward beauty, which is much more valuable to God. It echoes what God said to the prophet Samuel when he was anointing David as the next king of Israel. God said, humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now, while Peter wrote this for wives, it's actually good instruction for all of us today because we live in a society that is increasingly concerned with appearances, there's, a, there's an Instagram account that's caused a lot of discussion lately called Preachers and Sneakers. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. Basically what it is is it posts pictures of well-known preachers who are re- wearing really nice shoes. And beside the picture of the pastor preaching wearing the really nice shoes, it puts up a screen capture from a website showing how much those shoes are selling for. And some of these guys are wearing shoes that cost thousands of dollars. It's, it's shocking to me because, like, I only buy shoes if they're on sale. And so I just can't relate to it whatsoever. Now, the discussion that's arisen around this is whether or not this is okay. Whether or not these pastors and preachers should be spending this kind of money on shoes and other parts of clothing. And that's not what I want to get into right now. There's a debate to be had for that another time. And so I don't know exactly how Peter would address preachers and sneakers, the person posting it, as well as the people that are featured there. I don't know what he'd say directly, but I do think we can confidently say that in light of what he says to wives in Asia Minor, that he would say something like, hey, character matters more than clothes. 
He wasn't trying to tell the women that they should look as drab and unappealing as possible. What he was telling them was that's what they shouldn't be known for. Don't be known for what you look like. No, be known for the good that you do. Your character matters more than clothes, and that character is also what mattered for their husbands. Look at what he says to them, to believing husbands, to Christian husbands who find themselves in a marriage with a wife who has not yet put her faith in Christ. He says in the same way, with all reverence, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So he's restructuring the leadership that Christian husbands are now to provide in their household. That they shouldn't lead from ultimate authority. But that they should lead from the authority that Christ has in their lives. Which means that they should love their wives and treat them not just as their wife but as a sister in Christ. Even though they might not yet be a sister in Christ. So that their prayers for her salvation will not be hindered by them mistreating her in any way. And what does it look like exactly for them to show them this honor as co-heirs of the grace of life? Well, they should live with them in an understanding way as with a weaker partner. Now, look, I'm not one to, like, want to change anything in Scripture, but if I could provide a little edit, it would be weaker partner. Like, if Peter had been dictating this letter to me, this would have been the moment I would have given him a little side eye. Like, are we sure that's what we want to go with? Because we're forced to ask ourselves, what is he trying to say about the ladies, that they're the weaker partner? Is it mental weakness? Surely not. Is it emotional weakness? No. Is it spiritual weakness? Definitely not. Co-heirs of the grace of life. I think what he's getting at is it's physical weakness. Now, let me also say this. I've worked out with some people in this room, with some ladies in this room at Iron Tribe and Godspeed, and by no means am I going to use weak in any way to describe any of you. I've seen my wife give birth to a child. There was nothing weak about it. But I think what Peter is driving his husbands to realize is live with them in an understanding way. They're responsible for everything in the household. Yeah, you're leading it, but they're actually the ones who have to do everything. It's impossible for someone to do everything. That you as a husband leading them in such a way in which you are honoring them as a co-heir of the grace of life means that you help them. Peter doesn't call the husband to submit to the wife who is not yet trusted in Christ because that wouldn't be the proper structure of the household for Rome or for the church. But he does call the Christian husband to live with his wife in a different way, to recognize that she can't do everything according to her own strength and that she needs help. And the reason why is because in doing good in that way, he is demonstrating for her that we cannot do anything on our own that we cannot save ourselves, that we cannot fix our sin problem, that we need help, that we have a need for a savior. And he's giving her a picture of what that looks like. Now the problem or the challenge, of course, for the slave, for the Christian wife with a husband that's not a Christian or for the Christian husband with a wife that's not a Christian is that no matter how much good is done in submission to others as God's servants, that there will be some who not only don't glorify God, but who actually actively seek to silence those who serve him. That brings us to the fourth part of Peter's plan for how to be unstoppable. Suffer well. Suffer well. When Peter wrote about suffering in this letter, it wasn't suffering that his readers experienced because of some sin that they had committed or mistake that they had made. It wasn't suffering from illness or grief or loss of a job. The suffering that Peter addressed with his audience was something they were experiencing daily as a result of persecution. They were suffering because they were being mistreated, they were being oppressed, they were being persecuted because they had faith in Jesus. Pastor Jonathan Bean used to always teach us that the goal of persecution is to silence witness. 
And that's true today as much as it was true in Peter's day, that the church in Asia Minor was surrounded by people who wanted to shut them up for proclaiming the gospel of Christ and beat them down into total submission so that they didn't have the strength to live out the gospel by doing good in their lives. In other words, they wanted to stop them. But Peter knew they were actually unstoppable. Look at what he wrote, 1 Peter 3, 13 and 7, through 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then the next chapter, 1 Peter 4, 12 through 18. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly in the sinner? Peter's prescription for suffering well echoed what he kept writing over and over throughout this letter. To suffer well, you got to do good. Continuing to do good, to glorify God, and so that others might glorify them, them, might glorify him themselves, demonstrated to all those who saw it that their hope was not in whatever measure of safety and comfort that this world has to offer. No, their hope was in God alone and his sovereign care for them. Even if they should suffer for the rest of their lives because of their faith in Jesus, they could still have hope because they knew that in the end, Jesus wins. He's unstoppable. And therefore, they could be too. No matter what persecution they experienced for their faith, they didn't need to fear it or to be intimidated by it because God was in control. And God knows what He's doing. Instead, what they needed was to be ready to give an answer to anyone who asked them how they could have so much hope in the midst of so much suffering. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 is getting at. We've all heard the saying that's often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Peter certainly wanted the church in Asia Minor to preach the gospel with the way they lived, by doing good, with good works. But this is where the words come into play. The words are always necessary. The doing good in the midst of suffering and hardship prayerfully leads people to ask you, how can you have hope when everything's so crummy for you? And you get to say, because of Christ. It's not me. It's not my strength. It's not what I can do. It's because of who he is and what he can do and what he has done in me. This verse in 1 Peter here has been hijacked by modern apologetics, but there was no picture in Peter's mind of people standing on the stage and debating one another in an auditorium. Instead, it was in relationship with people as they asked the question to gently and respectfully be able to share with them the hope that you have in Christ alone. Again, when Peter writes this, I can't help but he's thinking of the words of Jesus where he was present there on the night before Jesus died where Jesus said in John 15 that if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master that they persecuted me 
they will also persecute you. And suffering persecution for their faith, Peter's readers were simply doing what they had always done since they had initially put their faith in Jesus. And that was that they were following Christ. And Peter called them to continue to do that, to follow Christ. That's the last part of his plan, to be unstoppable. As in all aspects of life, Jesus is the example for the Christian, the model to imitate as we do good in the world, even in a world in which we will suffer because of our faith. Back up in chapter 2, when Peter was instructing household slaves to submit, he fully recognized that some would suffer oppression in addition to the oppression they already experienced simply because they were following Jesus. And it's with the verses that follow that where Peter instructed those household slaves that it becomes clear as instructions to his entire audience and for all of us of how to do this well. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For you were called to this, to this suffering. You were called to this suffering because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We suffer in this world and in this life because Christ suffered, and he is our example for how to suffer well. That's why we must continue to follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that we are called to suffer in exactly the same way that Jesus did. After all, we cannot bear our sins as we hang upon the cross. Jesus did that. It's done. Most of us here in this room, we will never be martyred for our faith in Christ, though there are certainly brothers and sisters around the world that are martyred even today. And Peter, who was writing this letter, he would be martyred himself. He would actually be crucified like Christ was. But Jesus' example for us, it's not in what specifically we are to suffer, but it's in how we are to do it. Peter wrote that no deceit was found in his mouth. In other words, he didn't lie. He did not insult in return. He didn't seek to get back at anybody. He did not threaten. Jesus' example for how to suffer can actually be summed up what Peter wrote about him at the beginning of verse 22, where he said this, he did not commit sin. Though he suffered, he didn't sin. See what Peter then wrote in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Jesus suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. Peter's answer for how to follow Jesus in suffering, well, it's going to sound eerily familiar. Don't sin. Instead, do good. Which is why he closed this section of his letter with the words that he did. Verse 19 of chapter 4. So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So, Brick Hills, what then shall we do in light of everything that we have seen here in 1 Peter? How can we take Peter's instructions to the scattered church in Asia Minor and how can we apply it to our own lives and to our own church? How can we too be unstoppable? Well, this morning I want to make it really easy for us. I'll simply say this, see the above. See the above. How can we be unstoppable? Do good. Glorify God. Submit yourselves. Suffer well. Follow Christ. So are you doing good? Not are you earning God's favor. Not are you keeping him happy. Not are you adhering to cultural laws and morals. Rather, in light of all that God has done for you, setting you free from slavery to sin, are you abstaining from 
from continuing in that sin. And instead, are you reliant on God's strength and righteousness in you to do good? Is that good that you're doing glorifying God? Is it demonstrating the gospel in such a way that others can see God's good in you so that they might be able to glorify themselves? Or in your effort to take a stand for holiness and what's right, are you actually detracting from the gospel? More practically, should you post that thing on Facebook? Is that the tone that you need to take with the person that disagrees with you or isn't like you? Do you submit yourselves first to Christ and then to other authorities? Really weigh that for yourself because we, unlike those in Asia Minor, we have the opportunity to engage with authorities in this world. We can sometimes get our faith all mixed up with our politics so that they get out of balance and we end up serving a party over the Lord. Let's be known for the good that God calls us to do in humble submission instead of what we think we are owed, what rights we claim to have. Do you suffer well? In your suffering, do you demonstrate that your ultimate hope is in God alone, not the meager safety and comfort that this world has to offer? Do you suffer at all for your faith? If not, praise God. But also, perhaps it's an opportunity for self-examination. After all, remember that the purpose of persecution is to silence witness. Is it possible that you do not experience persecution because you have no witness to silence? And lastly, are you following Christ? Obviously, most of us have initially put our faith in him. We have taken that step of following him for salvation. But are you continuing to walk with him in trust and obedience in every aspect of your life? The enemy wants nothing more than to stop the spread of the gospel and the growth of God's kingdom in this world. But so far, he hasn't been successful. And we know from God's word that he never will be because Jesus is unstoppable. His gospel is unstoppable. His mission is unstoppable. Therefore, his church is unstoppable. And when we entrust ourselves to our faithful creator while doing good, we are unstoppable too.